From KBOO in Portland, Oregon, this is Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. I'm John Shuck. Why do we let uh, Hindus in India bring 25-foot Ganesh idols and leave them in the sea? We don't let other people do that. That's, uh, you know, water pollution. Why should we let religion uh, be able to do that? And, you know, that has a common sense appeal until you kind of realize that there are millions of Hindus for which this ritual is incredibly central to their identity as human beings. What happens when religious practice and environmentalism collide? My guest is Jay Wexler, professor at the Boston University School of Law. We're going to discuss his book, When God Isn't Green, a worldwide journey to places where religious practice and environmentalism collide. Via Skype from Boston, welcome, Professor Wexler, to Progressive Spirit. Thanks for having me. This is, uh, I'm looking forward to talking to you about this. You know, I, I didn't think that a book on the clash between religion and the environment would be so much fun. Uh, you had a good time writing this, didn't you? It was really fun. Uh, one thing I learned uh, when I was writing my first book, Holy Hullabaloo's, is that if you want to have fun as a professor, you have to leave your office and you have to go to places where controversies are taking place and you got to meet the people who are involved in it. And when you do that, uh, it turns out to be much more fun than if you're just sitting in your office reading a bunch of books. <laughs> well, how did this uh, book uh, come to be? Well, it's kind of a long story. Uh, after Holy Hullabaloo's, that, that was a book where I went around the country and I, I, I visited places where big church-state Supreme Court cases came from. And so after that, I kind of got the travel bug and I wanted to do more of this, going to places and visiting and talking to people's stuff. Uh, and one thing that I had not been able to do in that book was to investigate any uh, religious controversies involving Native Americans, which is which are incredibly important, I think, a part of the story for church-state relations in the United States. And I also teach uh, Native American law, too. So I was looking out for a case which involved religion and Native Americans, and I just I happened upon a case involving bald eagle feathers, bald and golden eagle feathers, which was great because it involved also environmental law, which is something else I teach. And these uh, cases involved uh, the, the following problem. Uh, many Native Americans, Native American tribes, believe that they need to use golden feather, uh, eagle feathers, or bald eagle feathers as part of their religious rituals. But at the same time, federal law has prohibited since 1940 the possession of any part of a bald eagle, dead bald eagle feather, head, anything is illegal. So there's a clash right there, and the way that the federal government has decided to deal with that, for the most part is by opening up an agency in Colorado called the National Eagle Repository, which is a place like the most bizarre place I've ever visited. All they do there is collect dead, bald, and golden eagles uh, that people send, usually state wildlife officials send there, and they basically process the eagles, cut them up, keep the stuff that, that is uh, still good, like the feathers that are still okay, and then they send them to the Native American tribes who have applied for them, basically on a first-come, first-served basis. And it's pretty controversial. I mean, on the one hand, it does kind of try to get at this problem. On the other hand, if you're a Native American and you believe the eagle feather is a, 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 a sacred object, you don't usually want to apply to the federal government to uh, you know, get one in a Federal Express box. So it's kind of controversial, and Native Americans, some have argued that they shouldn't have to use the repository, and so there are all these cases about it. I visited the repository and watched them process some dead bald eagles, which was one of the most bizarre things I've ever done in my life, and 
Uh, so at the end of this trip, I wanted to write a book about bald eagles, which I thought would be a great book. But uh, it turned out that nobody wanted to publish a book about bald eagles. For I don't know why. I still think they should. But yeah. uh, nobody was interested in the bald eagle book. So I got kind of sad. And I went over to my editor's uh, office at Beacon Press, and she poured me some whiskey. And we were talking, and I was trying to convince her one last time about the bald eagle book. And she said, isn't there something, kind of a broader story here that the bald eagle is an example of? And I sighed because I was kind of sad. I knew this wasn't, that the bald eagle thing wasn't going to fly, so to speak. And I said, I don't know, what about religious practices generally that harm the environment? And I looked up from my whiskey, and she was there, and she was smiling. And she was like, now that's interesting. So I said, oh, really? Uh... And I thought, well, I do know about a bunch of different examples from around the world where this has happened because I've just sort of collected them in my head uh, as a result of teaching these law and religion and church uh, and environmental law for my for the last 10 years. And so I went back and I did some research and I came up with a bunch of examples. And then I realized, oh, I could travel around the world, maybe. And that's basically where the book started. And you did uh, travel all over uh, to Mumbai and Guatemala and, and uh, Taipei, I think, wasn't it? I mean, how, how many, where, where all did you end up going? Yeah, about a half a dozen places. In, in addition to Mumbai and Guatemala, Mexico, that was Guatemala, Mexico was one trip. Uh, Taiwan, Singapore, Hong Kong, and Barrow, Alaska, which is the very northernmost city, so to speak, uh, in the United States. Those are the main trips that I went to. Yeah, yeah you know, back to the uh, repository, that was a fascinating chapter. All these government officials getting these eagle parts for religious <laughs> uh, purposes. But, I mean, uh, what's the scale of that? I mean, how many uh, feathers are really needed? Thousands. Uh, the thing is that the, the, um, the, the demand outstrips the supply. Uh, because there's a, there are a lot of Native Americans who are applying for these feathers and for whole birds sometimes, and there's just a limited amount of dead, bald, golden eagles that make it to this repository, although there are plenty. I mean, there's a whole freezer full of them. And uh, when I was there, there was a, there was a, a pallet with a bunch with boxes, like a mountain of boxes that were going to be sent out. So they're, certainly they have a lot, but they don't have enough uh, to satisfy the demand of the federally recognized tribes that are out there applying for them. You're listening to Progressive Spirit with John Chuck. My guest is Jay Wexler. He's the author of When God Isn't Green, a worldwide journey to places where religious practice and environmentalism collide. Uh, and so with this, uh, the purpose of this book in one way is to talk about the balance uh, on one level between uh, religious practice and cultural practice and, and the need for the environment. And, uh, and that's n- not an easy thing to do, is it? No, it's uh, it's difficult and tricky, and it's a fine line. And I I do always, when I'm talking about the book, want to make very clear that even though I'm talking about religious practices that harm the environment, and so some people you know might leap to the conclusion, oh, this is an anti-religion book or something like that, uh, and that's uh, couldn't be further from the truth. Um, what I'm trying to do here is talk about these specific instances around the world where we have a clash of two really important values, religious freedom on the one hand and environmental protection on the other hand. I think they're both equally important. Uh, I'm personally happy to be an atheist. Anybody who's read any of my books would know that, but I'm also very dedicated to religious freedom and believe that religious freedom is an incredibly important part 
uh, not only of U.S. society, but of, uh, of societies around the world. And so I think it's really important that we protect it. On the other hand, of course, it's really important that we protect our environment and we don't harm species that are necessary for our ecological health and harm our air and water. Sometimes it turns out we have these clashes and we have to figure out what we're going to do about it. And as a society, sort of as a world society, I guess, our decisions about how to balance those two important interests are going to say a lot about how tolerant we are and how understanding and empathetic we are of people uh, who are engaging in practices that you know, might be strange to us or uh, otherwise, you know, we don't understand. So it's it's difficult. It's a difficult balance to strike, and that's what I'm trying to get at in the book. Because some people might argue we're just giving religion too much of a pass here. We're treating religion with kid gloves. And what would be wrong, they might say, with making religious institutions like we do with all other institutions, you know, kind of recognize when things are harmful to change the practice. I think that's absolutely right. And so if, if you talk to some environmentalists who are, don't have much sympathy for religion, they very well might say, well, why, why do we let uh, Hindus in India bring 25-foot Ganesh idols and leave them in the sea? We don't let other people do that. That's uh, you know, water pollution. Why should we let religion uh, be able to do that? And you know, that has a common sense appeal until you kind of realize that there are millions of Hindus for which this ritual is incredibly central to their identity as human beings. And then you have to realize, oh, geez, that's, that's kind of an important value too. And so how are we going to uh, balance them uh, together? And then, you know, on the other hand, you have some religious people who think, well, what's the big deal with a ritual that causes a little bit of pollution when you, you know, compare that to manufacturing pollution? So maybe, envir- maybe religious uh, groups, you know, should be able to do whatever they want. Um, so on both sides, you might have kind of more absolute uh, positions. And what I'm trying to say is that neither of those absolute positions are exactly right, and we need to find some sort of compromise in the middle, or at least hopefully we will. All right. Hey, let's talk about palm branches. Uh, Hosanna, mm-hmm. blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Palm Sunday is a, a big Sunday for Christian churches. Little children waving palm branches. What could possibly be wrong with that? <laughs> right. And uh, who, whoever thinks about where those palm uh, fronds come from, right? Uh-huh. Well, it turns out they come from a small uh, number of uh, Central American countries, South, Southern um, Mexico, Chiapas, the state of Chiapas, and also uh, Western Guatemala and Belize, a few, just a few places that have large palm forests where these fronds come from. And it turns out that the demand for palm fronds in the United States and Europe has over time placed a great deal of stress on those forest ecosystems because, you know, these are poor communities and so the uh, the idea of uh, getting as many palm fronds out of the forest as possible and selling them to people who want them in the United States is pretty attractive and that's what basically had been going on for a long time is that people would just go in and clear cut the palm frond forests take as many palms as they could, sell as many as they could, and that would be the end of it. And these forests were becoming uh, basically destroyed. It wasn't just, of course, the Palm Sunday market that was that was harming these forests. Palm fronds are used for other things, uh, usually as part of floral arrangements. So some people in Guatemala and, and Mexico, some NGOs and the government and villagers themselves who live off these forests, uh, at some point in the last decade or so, realized that the forests were being depleted and it was going to harm their lifestyle in the coming future. And so they kind of came together and started figuring out ways to sustainably harvest the palm fronds from the forest themselves. But that takes a lot of money and that's uh, you know going to cut into the profits. 
So one thing that happened in the United States was that there was a, uh, a group of people who realized, and uh, uh, great thanks here goes out to a professor at the University of Minnesota named Dean Current, who spearheaded this whole uh, effort, basically to find churches who would be willing to pay a premium for sustainably harvested palms, just like people are willing to pay a little bit more for sustainably harvested coffee or chocolate. And it turns out that churches, uh, a lot of churches are quite willing to pay extra money to have palms that are certified as coming from a, a sustainably harvested forest. And so these religious groups have gotten together and they pay a lot of uh, money. Uh, and this money goes to the villages down in Guatemala and Mexico, and it helps them make up for the losses that they incur because they're not taking the entire forest every year, you know, kind of thing. But it also gives them money for schools and for health care and for kind of insurance purposes. And I've been to some of these, went to some of these villages, and the people there are very grateful uh, for, the, for the money that the churches are giving. Of course, some people wish the churches were giving more money, you know, and were, were buying more kind of products from, from these villages. But all in all, it seems to be a system that is working out very well, a kind of a combination of the people who live in the villages and the government and the environmental NGOs down in Central America and the churches in the United States kind of working together to uh, to come up with a sustainable uh, alternative to the to the previous way that these palm fronds were harvested. Yeah, I know with the the eco palms. In fact, we we got them for for my congregation. I kind of wonder again about the scale of that. I mean, is that I often think I'm buying the eco palms, but that isn't very much. I mean, most of the churches are still, I think, doing the traditional palm fronds, right, where they're still destroying the forests. Well, I, yeah, I don't know the numbers. I haven't kept up with the numbers. I do know that. Between, say, 2005 and 2012, this program went from something like 5,000 palms to a million palms or something like that. So, it, uh, it, you know, I think it is significant. You're right that it's, it's by no means all all fronds or, or even a substantial percentage of the fronds are harvested with this eco-palms program. But I think it's getting bigger, and the more we talk about it, and the more people raise consciousness about the the need to sustainably harvest the palms. I think the more congregations in the United States will uh, will buy into it. And um, I mean, I, what Dean Curran told me is there is very few congregations who are not going to pay, you know, twenty extra dollars uh, to save the forest in Central America. And I, I I I hope that that he's right. And I tend to think he is right. It's just a matter of being conscious of uh, of the problem. It's bigger than just the environment because the whole palm frond thing also has a social justice and an economic justice aspect to it as well. I mean, sustainably harvesting palms in the forest is also economically beneficial for those who do it. Is that right? Absolutely. Uh, when I was down in, um, in, uh, in Mexico, in Chiapas, and I spent a couple of days in this village, and it's a very uh, poor village, but uh, the, uh, the villagers work really, really hard. They're trying to save these forests. The forests are absolutely necessary for their survival. Uh, you know, not just the palms, but there are lots of other things that come from those forests. And if the palms are harmed, the whole forest will be harmed, and they'll lose, uh, you know, their their livelihood. And I had this really um, poignant conversation with a group of harvesters there, who pointed out, you know, that they are kind of on the front lines of protecting. The world's environment. I mean, these these forests are incredibly important for everybody, you know, because they're so have so such rich ecological diversity, uh, species and various other things in there. Um, and he's and he says, uh, you know, we 
we really ho hope that we're, uh, you know, that people realize what we're doing and will help us and, you know, um, uh, because we're working really, really hard kind of for the whole world and he was right. And I hope that people realize that and, uh, and, and are willing to give more money for, the, for these eco-poms and other uh, products that come for the forest to help this group of people who are you know, kind of living on the edge but are doing incredibly important work for all of us. So I agree, it's more than just the environment. Progressive Spirit. Spirituality. Social Justice. ProgressiveSpirit.net. When God Isn't Green, a worldwide journey to places where religious practice and environmentalism collide, Jay Wexler is my guest on Progressive Spirit. Where do you draw the line if there is one between culture and religion. I mean, what, what, what do we call lighting fireworks on the 4th of July or cutting down however many it is Christmas trees each year or slaughtering yeah. turkeys for Thanksgiving? I mean, there are other cultural practices that we might not call necessarily religious that are also damaging as well in a larger sense, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, that's an extremely hard question. Um, when I teach church state law, that's, my, that's how I start the class is, you know, what is religion? You know, for legal purposes, it actually it matters quite a bit. Um, you know, I I guess I'm not so worried about finding the, the exact line between religion and culture, and saying that religion is something we need to care about. And and but if there's something that's cultural but not quite religious, we don't need to care about it as much. Uh, you're right. There are some very deeply held beliefs that you might not call religious, but but are nonetheless harm the environment. And do we treat those the same as religion or not? I don't know. Sometimes that's a hard question. Uh, particularly uh, in when I was researching the book, this came up with respect to whaling. In uh, when I went to Barrow, Alaska, the Inupiat um, uh, people up there have been whaling for thousands of years, and it and is it a, a religious? practice or not, it's kind of a hard question uh, because there are certainly, it certainly was religious at one point and now there's uh, certainly a lot of religion involved in the hunt. For example, the people believe that the whale gives itself to them and they have to pray in order to get the whale to agree to give itself to the community. And But at the same time, it's really not religious in the in the sense that they believe that, that taking the whale is a, a religious obligation, or, I think, or or anything like that, but it. But but the point is, I thought that the 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 whaling culture functions just like a religion does in other places, and so it's central to their uh, understanding of themselves. It's central to the identity of the community, and so uh, you know, I decided to talk about whaling and 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 what how we ought to balance whaling with uh, you know protecting whales with protecting the freedom of this uh, of the Inupiats to follow the practices that they've engaged in for hundreds of years without worrying so much about whether this counts as religion or not, because it's essentially the same to me, I think. How effective has education been in making some of these religious practices more environmentally friendly? Uh, it depends on the context, but I think generally quite a lot. Um, I'm thinking about the Ganesh Festival in India, yeah, talk about for that for example. a second. That was where they take uh, Ganesh is the elephant-headed deity in Hinduism, and uh, the big celebration is to take the Ganesh head and, and immerse him in the water. Big statues, right? Of so these guys. there's this. Uh, it's an unbelievable uh, holiday. It's a like a ten-day festival. It's popular all over India, but really uh, super popular in Mumbai. And so I spent a week there, and uh, these giant um, idols are all around the city. Beautiful glorious, uh, you know, painted 
grand, beautiful idols, and people come and worship them from all over, and there, uh, you know, there are millions of people coming to worship these specific idols that are spotted around the city. In addition to that, there are also hundreds of thousands of household Ganesh that people have, you know, in their homes that are maybe like two feet tall or something. So, so there are lots and lots of Ganesh idols all over the city. And then on the last day of the ritual, they're brought to the sea or to the lakes or rivers and immersed in the water, just basically left in the water. Um, and it's an incredible scene. There are a million people on the beach uh, in Mumbai, and there are these 25-foot beautiful Ganesh statues, and they're just driven into the sea. It's like if the, um, if the Rose Bowl parade ended in the Pacific Ocean, but in, instead of stopping, it just kept on going. <laughs> and I watched this, and it was just it's incredible. Beautiful, but also when you think about what happens under the water, it's a little bit horrifying because they're, it's just like a mountain of plaster of Paris in the, in the sea, which is pretty harmful for the environment. So there are ecological uh, movements in India to try to influence how this ritual is carried out. Nobody thinks that it's going to stop because, uh, you know, it's just so important and so central to the, to, to, to the city and to the, and to the Hindus who, who celebrate uh, Ganesh. But what, what some of these ecologically minded uh, people are trying to push for are things like, let's make them smaller. Let's not paint them with lead paint. Let's take off the jewelry before we put, put it in the water, things like that. And some of those uh, lessons have, in fact, I think, made the, the, the holiday a little less environmentally harmful. So even there, when you have an incredibly vital religious uh, ritual that's not going to go away, you can make some inroads into making it less harmful. Yeah, you said it was uh, a marathon, not a sprint. Right, right. I think that it's the kind of thing which is going to take a long time and maybe over time people will realize, oh, maybe we should use clay instead of plaster of Paris, and that's much more environmentally friendly, though it's more expensive and heavier, so it's harder to carry around. But maybe over time, as people you know, learn about the dangers of plaster of Paris and the benefits of clay, we, uh, we might see more and more clay idols. And so, you know, 50 years from now, hopefully... Things will be, uh, we'll still have a vital religious ritual, but we'll also have uh, less environmental degradation. And it's really important, it seems to me, that you, that folks on the religious end really get a buy-in with this. You can change your theology, so to speak, to be make it more environmentally friendly. I mean, people can recognize that it's actually, Ganesh would really like it if he was clay, or palm fronds would really be wonderful, you know, if uh, Jesus would love it if they were, you know, sustainable. I mean, you can, it takes the religious language to kind of uh, help move that along, doesn't it? That's right. And, um, you know, I'm in a tricky position uh, writing the book from that perspective, because I don't. What I don't want to do is I don't want to preach basically to Buddhists that they have to change their views or to Hindus because that they should change their views because I'm an outsider. I'm an atheist and uh, I'm, I'm not you know shy about that. That kind of change is going to have to come from inside the community. I, it's not going to help to have you know an atheist lecturing uh, uh, Hindus about how they ought to carry out their religious rituals, which I think is something we you know see a lot of that I wanted to kind of avoid. So I just wanted to put out the uh, the problem. Uh, make it more, uh, you know, to just to bring attention to it, and then hopefully religious groups will take it and, and work within their own community to make things more ecologically friendly. That's my hope. 
We just have about a minute left, but I do want to talk about the Buddhists. And, uh, you know, so we think of them as cool and hip and celebrating all living things, but you write about the mercy release practice that maybe um, has a good intent but a harmful effect. Yeah, this is an incredible practice I had never heard of before. Um, it, it has its roots in the Buddhist teaching that if you see an animal in distress or, or captured, you should release it, and that will be good for the animal, and it will bring you karmic benefits as well, which is a beautiful teaching in my view. Um, some big Buddhist temples around the world, and especially Taipei, uh, Taiwan, have kind of taken this idea and, and, and sort of mutated it in a way, made it into kind of a big business. They pay trappers to bring in, say, 100,000 turtles, and um, those turtles are kept in bags for a long time, and many of them die. And then the idea is that the parishioners come to the temple, give the temple a lot of money to participate in this mass mercy release ritual, and they release the 100,000 turtles often into places, uh, ecosystems where they don't belong, or, and, you know, so they end up destroying the ecosystem, and they die themselves. And then as soon as that's over, the trappers go and trap the ones who are alive again, and it goes on and on. It's like a karma mill uh, kind of thing. And it's very, it's very bad for the environment, for the, for the animals, of course, and for the ecosystems. It's only a select group of Buddhists who do this, and there, there are other Buddhists who think this is a terrible thing and are mm-hmm. fighting to get the, 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 the big mercy release Buddhists to stop it. Well, you know, you bring up an important question, though, about business. I mean, religion and people who make a profit off of, um, you know, the, like you mentioned, in the, the all of these items, all of these things, uh, and that's an element. It isn't necessarily religious practice in and of itself. It's also the business that influences it. There's no doubt that the business uh, is a big part of it and it makes it more difficult. You know, I, when I was talking to the mercy release people, and I said, could this be solved without government intervention? I mean, when I was talking to the animal rights activists, they said, no, you know, this is a business and it's not going to go away just by trying to persuade people to protect the environment because there are a lot of people making money. And so that's going to require some government, you know, legal regulation. Uh, and I think that's probably right. A very important book, uh, When God Isn't Green, A Worldwide Journey to Places Where Religious Practice and Environmentalism Collide. Jay Wexler, the author and my guest on Progressive Spirit, thank you for this book and and, uh, for being with me today. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to Progressive Spirit, spirituality, social justice. For links to podcasts, go to progressivespirit.net, and you can download podcasts from your favorite podcast app. From KBOO Portland, I'm John Schock. Be well.